You may be seated, church. Good evening. It's good to get to be with you tonight. For those of you I haven't met, my name is Alex Schroeder, and I serve on staff as our discipleship minister. If you have your Bibles with you, I invite you to open uh, to Titus chapter 2. This past Sunday, uh, my wife and I were hosting our community group in our house, and as happens many times, I'm sure, in groups, we were just having informal conversation uh, while we were eating dinner, and someone in uh, our, our, our group asked the guys that were eating together, uh, and he said, hey, if there was any book or story or movie that you could just forget every year so that you could experience it afresh, what movie or story or book would it be? So I love questions like that. I think they're awesome. And I don't really care what your answers are because I have to tell you mine. Um, and I've been thinking about it for a couple days now. So to me, it's an easy answer. It's the movie Interstellar. And I don't know if you've seen it. I don't know if you think I'm crazy for saying it. I love this movie. Um, I think it's incredible. Uh, if you're going to watch the movie, uh, be prepared uh, to go on a feels trip because your emotions are going to be all over the place. It, you'll be angry. You'll be scared. You'll be heartbroken. Uh, you'll, be, you'll be elated at times. It's incredible. Um, for those of you that don't know the story or haven't seen it, it's about an engineer uh, who's also a trained NASA pilot who is living in a in like an apocalyptic world. So he's, he's become a farmer to get crops because every, like, everything's breaking down. And uh, because of some weird circumstances, he has the opportunity to go on an interstellar mission to save the world from drought and famine. Uh, his name's Cooper, it's our main character. He's really reluctant about the mission. And the biggest reason why is that he would have to leave behind his two children, his son Tom and his daughter Murph. And he knows, obviously, he'd be away from them in the meantime, but this is such a significant, crazy mission that he doesn't know if he'll ever see them again. And so he has to do this calculus in the moment. Is it worth leaving his family but maybe saving his family and generations on the world. Uh, eventually, he decides to go. Um, and his daughter, Murph, is just heartbroken by it. The day that is set for his mission to leave, his daughter's barricaded herself in her room um, and won't say bye to him. Eventually, he kind of navigates his way in, and she's inconsolable, and she won't talk to him, and she won't say bye. And he pleads with her, don't make me leave like this. And you just feel the weight of a daughter that's going to miss her dad. And he looks at her and he says, I love you forever. I'm coming back. I'm coming back. And then he leaves. And it's the last time that we, we know for sure that he might get to see her. So later in the movie, there's a point where he sits down on his, uh, his interstellar mission in this spaceship. And he's received some video messages from Earth. And he sits down to watch them. And there's two things we realize. The first is that because of some weird physics things that I can't explain, maybe some Sandia people could for us, uh, he hasn't aged, but his, his kids have aged tremendously. And he realizes how much of his children's lives he's missed. And we also learn just how upset Murph is at him still. And we learn that because she hasn't sent any messages. He's got message after message from his son, and he hears nothing from his daughter. And it seems as if the scene's ending, and then all of a sudden, the screen flickers, and you see his aged daughter, Murph. Uh, and you can see from her expression, she's still 
so hurt by his leaving and making her wait. And she says to him to conclude her message, it'd be really great if you'd come back. And she cries, and the screen shuts off, and he's crying, and you're crying, and it's, it's this terrible moment in this movie. And the scene just rips at your heart. Can this dad really keep his promise? Does he even have the power and the ability to come back like he said he would? Or is Murph staying on earth, believing in a pipe dream? Well, brothers and sisters, there's a lot of waiting in the Christian life too. 2 Corinthians 5.4 says that while we're in these bodies on earth, we will be groaning. That's the characteristic of what our lives are like. We're groaning because we're having to wait. But what is, is it true for us? The same, or the same question is true for us is, 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 is about Murph, right? Are we believing and waiting in a pipe dream? Or is there real substance that we're waiting for. So as we enter into this Advent season, as Chase already said, we're starting a new series on waiting, looking at passages from the Old and New Testament. Our hope is that we would be like those magi in, Luke, or in Matthew 2. You might remember those magi in Matthew 2 see the star and it says that they rejoice exceedingly with great joy. We want to focus on waiting and come out from the Bible, waiting for the work of the Lord, rejoicing exceedingly with great joy because of our studying of these passages. We want to come out being people who, as Paul says in 2 Timothy 4.8, are, lo- are loving his appearing. That's what we hope happens as we study these passages. So tonight, our passage is Titus 2, v- verse 11 through 14. Let me read our passage this evening. You can follow along with me on the screen or in your own personal Bible. Titus chapter 2, beginning in verse 11. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions, and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession, who are zealous for good works. Our passage this evening is all about God's grace. And we will see that grace is the thread that ties together all of history. Grace is what we're looking back to. It's what's empowering us now, and it's what we're waiting for. So our outline this evening breaks down into three points. Past grace, present grace, and future grace. Let's consider verse 11 together where we'll see past grace. To do this, let's just take this phrase at a time. Paul begins in verse 11. For the grace of God has appeared. How can an attribute of God appear? Doesn't that sound interesting? Isn't that an interesting phrase? That grace appeared. It manifested. It came. It's an interesting thought. Perhaps the way that we often think about grace is too small. Maybe you've heard the short definition of grace that I've heard a number of times, that grace is unmerited favor. Well, I think that's a good definition of grace. It seems hard how unmerited favor could come into existence or appear or pop out. So let me offer you another definition of grace. 
Grace is the expression of God's redemptive love for sinners. Grace is the expression of God's redemptive love for sinners. So if that's the definition we're working with, then anything and everything that God does in effort to redeem sinners is grace. So that means that unmerited favor is grace. That means that forgiveness of sin is grace. And it means that what happens, what Paul's describing in our passage tonight is grace. Christ's appearing is grace. And brothers and sisters, we know that the incarnation and all that follows after that are the clearest expression of God's redemptive love for sinners. No other act in history, no other act in the Bible manifests and declares God's grace like the birth of Christ and all that follows after it. When Paul speaks of this appearing of Jesus, he isn't just talking about the manger moment. Instead, Paul's talking about the entire life of Jesus, including his death, his burial, and resurrection. So this appearing took some time. It wasn't just that moment in a manger. This appearing took course over years through teachings and miracles. It, took, it appeared slowly as Jesus perfectly obeyed God's law, fulfilling every promise from the Old Testament. This grace appeared as Jesus hung lifeless on a cross. It appeared when he was pronounced dead and buried. And it appeared when he rose victoriously over death and walked out of the tomb. And yet in this season of Advent, it's right for us to narrow our focus down and to think of that manger moment and to see God's glorious grace. All of our hope begins when that baby comes into this world. That's when the plan is in motion and we see God's grace and we see the beginning of what will come to fruition where the king would die for us. So Christian, rest assured tonight, the grace of God is not just wishful thinking. It's not an empty pipe dream. Our hope is not rooted in a philosophy nor is, our, is God's grace an intangible, abstract idea. Our hope, God's grace, is a historical reality. A real baby in a real manger who would be a real savior for us. The grace of God has appeared. But let's be clear, this grace wasn't a new grace from God. This grace was determined from the beginning. At least that's how Paul puts it. If you looked at 2 Timothy chapter 1 and verse 9, Paul says that this grace that was given in Christ was given before the ages began. This was God's purpose and intention from ancient of days to send Jesus. So God's grace wasn't new, but it certainly was veiled and kept hidden as a mystery. It was veiled from those that heard directly from God. If we read 1 Peter 1 right, the prophets, who were God's mouthpiece, didn't know how this would play out. The very angels that were in his throne room didn't know and wanted to find out more. 1 Peter 1 says this, Concerning this salvation, the prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours 
inquired carefully. They knew, they knew God was faithful. They knew he'd made a promise. They wanted to know more, but they didn't get more. But they just yearned to find out how would God bring back the garden? How would he roll back these curses? How would death be swallowed up? They didn't know, but we do. We get the full picture because we have seen him for, who for a little while was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus. We've seen him who was crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death. And we've seen that through death he would conquer and destroy the one who has power of death so that we who through fear of death were, who have been subject to lifelong slavery. They didn't know, but we do. May we, it is no small thing that we get to celebrate by looking back to God's grace. We know that the baby was a king who would die. We know that this baby would be the great high priest who would sacrifice himself. And we know that this baby is the word of God that would be silent as he was crucified. And what does this grace come to do? Look, look, look with me back in verse 11. The grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation. The grace has come with saving power. It didn't, the, Jesus didn't come to bring good advice. He didn't come to make you feel better about yourself. He didn't come to heal you. And he didn't come to make all of the grievances and bad circumstances in your life go away. But he came to save Luke 19.10 says, he came to seek and save the lost. Mark 10.45 says, he came to give his life as a ransom for many. Jesus came to save. And what did he come to save us from? This is a great question. Just this morning, I was using a resource that helps people uh, in memorizing scripture. Uh, it's an app on my phone. It's also a website. I'd highly recommend it. It's called Fighter Verses. Um, they've curated like five years of scripture for you to memorize, and they have a great way of like bringing it up for you to uh, keep, uh, keep it fresh in your mind. So if you want to know more about it, please talk to me. I really love this app, and if you want to learn more scripture, I think it's a really helpful way to do it. Sorry about that weird plug. They haven't paid me to say anything. Um, I just like it and hope to encourage you. Um, anyway, this morning, I sit down for the first time to look at the verse that I'm supposed to memorize this week, and this is what it says. This is John 3.36. I haven't memorized it yet, so I'm going to read it. Uh, give me a break, guys. Yeah. Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. John 3.36. If we are to understand this verse rightly, then we would know that the wrath of God remains on anyone and everyone who does not believe and obey Jesus. God's wrath is a problem for sinners. In Romans 2, Paul says something very similar when he says that because of our hard, impenitent hearts, sinners are storing up wrath for themselves on the day of wrath. Did you know that in God's calendar, there's a day marked day of wrath in red where God will come with a judgment and wrath for sinners? This is our great problem 
And the amazing thing about God is that his wrath is not an injustice. It's a righteousness. It's a righteous thing that God would have wrath towards sin. And so we're in trouble because we have sinned. We've stored up wrath. And God is right to bring wrath. We must be saved from it. And this is precisely what Jesus came to do. Jesus came, God's grace appeared to remove God's wrath from us by taking it on himself. 1 Peter 3, 18 says, For Christ also suffered for sins. Well, whose sins? It can't be his own because what Peter goes on to say. Peter says, the righteous for the unrighteous. In other words, the righteous one suffered for the sins of the unrighteous ones. The sin that was ours is transferred onto Christ when we believe in him. And so that we are saved, not from ourselves, not from our bad circumstances, not from our declining health, not from our feeling bad about ourselves, but we're saved from wrath that God has towards sin. I'm not necessarily an outdoorsy type. I'd like to think that I am. I like to have Chacos on sometimes. Um, But... I do love watching a good outdoorsy documentary. Um, even when I was a kid, I remember uh, seeing a movie about Mount Everest and just thinking it was fascinating watching these guys climbing to the top. But in watching these documentaries, I became terrified of avalanches. Uh, there was just something so beautiful about it and horrifying. It was amazing watching these thousands of tons of snow just barreling down a mountain, making huge trees look like toothpicks. And I can't help but think of that and think of how horrifying it would be to turn around and look up a mountain and see the tsunami of snow coming toward me and thinking, it's, it's inevitable, what can I do? Guys, in many ways, this avalanche is perhaps a picture of what God's wrath is like for sinners. It is an immense weight of judgment that will come. And when it's coming for us, we can brace ourselves all we want and dig our heel in, and we're going to get swallowed up in it. But for those who are in Christ... It's as if that avalanche is barreling toward us and we can see it coming and right at the last minute, a giant boulder is thrown right in front of us. And the boulder stands secure and takes all the weight of all the power of that avalanche and snow and we stand behind the rock, shielded and safe from coming destruction. And we just rest in it. And we've done nothing and we're blown away by the quick shift from impending doom to salvation. Christ has stood in our place. He's borne the weight of God's wrath. And we stand in peace and freedom and forgiveness. God's grace has appeared. Have you experienced that sparing from wrath? Church, if you have, then we celebrate today. We don't come to the table solemn and gloomy, we come rejoicing because these symbols are, remind us and clue us in to how God did that wrath removing for us. It's that body broken that was ours to be broken, but taken from us. 
It was that blood shed that was ours to be shed, but instead cleanses us. So this is a celebration surface where we rejoice at what Christ has done. But if that isn't you, if you haven't trusted in Christ, or maybe this is the first time the gospel is coming with clarity in your heart, what you need is the cleansing of Jesus' blood. Do you see what God has done? Do you see the grace that has appeared for sinners so that sin and wrath would be totally and completely removed? And all you're needing to do is to take shelter behind the rock. That's it. That's all it takes is to trust in Jesus. This is what we celebrate tonight, that God's grace has appeared. It's tangible and real, and it came with saving power for all people. Now let's consider present grace. Look with me in verse 12. God's grace has appeared, and it's training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age. God's grace has appeared, and it is a training, instructing, teaching kind of grace. Does that surprise you? I think because of maybe our simple definition of grace, we often think of grace as synonymous with the word forgiveness. It certainly encompasses forgiveness, but grace also comes to instruct and train so that we would say no to sin and say yes to living in a way that's pleasing to God. Paul makes this so clear for us in this passage. God's expression of love for sinners is not just to forgive, but to transform them. And what does he transform us to? Well, this grace trains us to renounce some things and to live in certain ways. So what do we renounce? Well, we renounce ungodliness and worldly passions. Paul uses broad terms here. This is surprising if you've read if you remember and are, or have read much of Paul, it seems often that when Paul gives lists of vices, he gives very specific things, and he lists many of them, like eight or nine. Yet in this list, he just gives us two things. Now, the problem here is that it may be easier for us to overlook these two words. It may be easier to have conviction when we see our pet sin listed by Paul by name. But instead, these broad, vague words, we might just gloss over. But notice what Paul's done with them. He gives us one word, ungodliness, to describe actions and deeds that are not in keeping with God's commands. And he also gives us sinful, or he says worldly passions, a word that describes the affections and loves of the heart. And in this word pairing, Paul has painted a picture that encompasses every sin every vice, every love of the world that could be imagined. So while it may be easy for us to overlook that it doesn't mention anger or lust or greed by name, our sins are certainly encompassed in here and found here. So it's worth us asking and reflecting tonight, do we love the things of the world? Do we have passions that are marked by worldliness more than godliness? 
Do we live in a way that makes sense to the world? Or do we live in a way that's honoring to Christ? Well, brothers and sisters, this evening, as we come and partake in this meal, we need to ask ourselves, are we holding on to these loves? Are we holding on to these commitments to the ways of the world? Later, we're going to hear a warning regarding this meal. We're going to be instructed from the New Testament that we're not to take this meal in an unworthy manner. And now as you're reflecting on that, you might think, well, I've certainly sinned this week. Many of you, I would expect, would say you've sinned today. So is that the unworthy manner that should give us pause as we come to the table? I don't think so. We all will continue with sin. Instead, we need to reflect upon our sins. And as we're reflecting upon them and they're being brought to mind as we contemplate this meal, we need to commit by God's grace to renounce those sins. Taking the supper in an unworthy way is to come holding tight to those sins and not letting them go and renouncing them. So we come to this table as people who are repentant, not as people who are perfect. So when you come, come as repentant people. Be aware of your sin, but don't hold fast to it. Lean on this present grace, even the present grace in the moment as we come to the table to be renouncing your sin tonight. Well, the grace of God also instructs us to seek after the virtues of Christ. Paul says that we need to be self-controlled. We need to be upright and godly. Instead of seeking the ways and the loves of the world, we seek the ways of justice and righteousness and godliness. There's one word here that stands out. Self-controlled. If I asked you to boil down Christian character and virtue into three words... Would you pick self-controlled? I know I wouldn't. But Paul does here. Actually, Paul mentions it a lot of times in this book, Titus. Chapter 1, if we were to look there, we'd see he gives qualifications of an elder. One of the qualifications of an elder is that they be self-controlled. If we were to scan our eyes up higher in chapter 2, we'd see that Paul lists different demographics of people in the church. He talks about older men, older women, younger men. And for each of those demographics, do you know what he says they're supposed to be? Self-controlled. So what does this add up to? I think we should regard self-control as a mark of spiritual maturity and godliness, even though that we often overlook it in our society today. We should seek to be fervent and restrained and controlled in our lives. There's one character in the Bible that comes to mind for me when I'm thinking of self-control. Coincidentally, we've learned a lot about him recently in the book of Genesis, Joseph. Joseph was a young, handsome man, prospering in tons of ways. And he had a moment where he was approached by Potiphar's wife for an easy and immoral relationship. If you read the text carefully, in Genesis 39, it says, he says no one time, and then it says, in day after day, she kept talking to him about this. So what does self-control look like if we reflect on the life of Joseph? Self-control is to have sin right in your face, temptation and opportunity glaring at you, and for you to say with Joseph, how can I do this great wickedness and sin against my God? And not just for the one time, 
but for maybe to be back there the next day. Self-control is not restraining ourselves just once, but by God's grace to restrain ourselves day by day. May we do this as we're trained by God's grace. May we seek to grow in godliness, to make progress in hating the things of the world and loving the things of God. And may we grow in our ability to say no to sin regularly and with joy. And when do we do this? When does this training take place? Look at the very end of verse 12. In the present age. I think there's two ways we need to apply this idea of present age. First, we're called to be trained in godliness in this world. In the world God has given us today, we're called to be godly. Even back in 1964, Bob Dylan knew the times they were a-changing, but he, or the God's people then were called to be holy, God's people now are called to be holy. It doesn't matter if our society seems like it's decaying, we're still called to be holy. We're still called to be unstained from the decay of the world. So may we seek it in this world, in Albuquerque, New Mexico, in 2022, And in like 20 days, we'll do it in 2023 too. In that world, we'll seek to be holy. But we're also called to be holy and godly now. This isn't, godliness isn't something we wait to aspire to sometime later. Rather, it's something we seek after today. You don't wait till you're older. If you're younger in this room, if you wouldn't consider yourself an adult, maybe if others in this room wouldn't consider you an adult, that doesn't give you an excuse to not pursue godliness. If you're under 18 and you want to honor the Lord, you trust in him and you love your siblings to the glory of God. And you don't wait until you're 18 and out of the home to think, I'll be godly now. You don't wait until things slow down some. And you don't wait until you're in a better place to do it. And we certainly don't wait till heaven. Let me just say briefly that there are a number of structures and groups and people in our church that would love to walk with you. Be a friend, a brother, a sister, an accountability partner, a member of a community group. If you want to grow in godliness and you want to do it now, please come talk to one of the leaders in our church, one of our pastors, elders, staff. We would love to help connect you and walk along with you so that you could grow in being self-controlled, upright, and godly in this present age. So God's grace has appeared in the past. It works in the present. And yet there's still future grace, our third point. Do you notice our passage mentions two appearings? In verse 11, the grace of God has appeared. And in verse 13, we wait for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior. So this is our future grace we're looking forward to. So what should the posture of our lives be while we wait? It should be certainly that. The posture, the biggest, greatest banner that hangs over us is that we wait. We wait. Well, what are we waiting for? We're waiting for our blessed hope. This is our only hope. You know, notice that Paul calls it a blessed 
hope. That word blessed is an interesting word. It's difficult to translate into English. We don't have a good equivalent. It's the same word, if you remember this, from when we went through the Sermon on the Mount for the, the word blessed in the Beatitudes. So it could be, you could also be translated happy or something equivalent to that, that this is a, such a great blessing, it's a joyous hope, it's a happy hope. Well, and, and we know that if this life is all that there is, then we have a ton of reasons to be miserable. And there's not much to look forward to, but for those in Christ, we have a happy hope. We have joy and happiness. Just, oh, we have so many reasons, right? So much grace and joy and glory in Christ. And what is the hope in particular? Paul tells us at the very beginning of the book of Titus. Paul tells us it's the hope of eternal life. The hope that we await is future life after this life. Life through death and on the other side of death. And life unaffected by our sin and our great enemy, death. It's a life that will be lived before the face of Christ. This is the blessed hope that we're waiting for. We wait for this appearing of Christ when all of this will come to fruition. This appearing will be much like the first, and yet it will be quite different. The appearing will be like the first in that there will be true and full salvation for those that belong to God. Hebrews 9, 28 says, Christ will appear a second time, not to deal with sin, but to save those who are eagerly waiting for him. So there's already real salvation, and we're looking forward to even greater, fuller salvation to come. And yet, this coming will be quite different than the first. Paul in 1 Thessalonians 5 says this, You yourselves are fully aware that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. While people are saying there is peace and security, then sudden destruction will come upon them as labor pains come upon a woman and they will not escape. In the second appearing, Jesus will come with full and true salvation and complete destruction for his enemies. And yet, overall, what word would we describe this coming by? Paul uses the word glory. This will be a glorious appearing. It will give us an Full 4K imaging, this appearing, will show us the glory of Christ, clearer than we've ever seen. It's more beauty than our eyes can understand right now. But it's not just that Christ will be glorious, which will certainly be true. It's that Christ will come to do a work that produces glory. 1 Corinthians 15, 49 says this. Just as we have borne the image of the man of dust, we shall also bear the image of the man of heaven. Or Philippians 3 says that Christ will transform our lowly bodies. The work that Christ will do will be glorious because we will be transformed from image of God defiled and corrupted by sin to glorious image of God reflecting Christ in our nature in every way. This is going to be a glorious appearing. And we wait for it. 
In our world, we often think of waiting as a passive activity, sitting still, sitting quietly, just letting the time pass, second at a time. But the idea of waiting is far more active than that. For one, we've got present grace training us while we wait. So we don't just sit by twiddling our thumbs. We sit by growing. We sit by striving. We sit by training in godliness. But we also wait with anticipation and trust. We're looking forward to it. It's funny, as much as we could talk about Christmas Day, there is something about that anticipation of a child for Christmas that ought to reflect our condition too as Christians waiting, right? Every day, my daughter, who's in the back, asks, can we open presents? Is it Christmas? And we're like, no, Annie, it's not Christmas. And she's like, oh, I have to wait till Christmas? And we're like, yes, you've heard this since November 1st. Like, <laughs> yeah. But that anticipation, that longing, that expectancy, oh, church, we should long for it. May that be so in us, that as we reflect on waiting, that we would wait with more longing. We also wait with enduring faithfulness. We keep going about our business, whatever our business may be, marked with consistency and faithfulness before the Lord. And so we rejoice in past grace. We work out our salvation with the strength of present grace. And we wait for future grace. After his interstellar mission and some other crazy astronomical phenomenon that I can't explain, Cooper returns to see his daughter Murph. Sorry, I'm giving away the ending. It came out in 2014, so shame on you. And he's crying, she's crying, I'm crying too. It's amazing. Murph looks at her dad and says, nobody believed me, but I knew you'd come back. And her dad, looking into his daughter's eyes, knowing how often he probably thought he'd never be there, (laughs) asks her, how? And Murph's answer to him is, because my dad promised me. Waiting isn't easy, can be discouraging, demoralizing, and sometimes devastating. But waiting becomes possible when we know who we're waiting for. Brothers and sisters, we don't hope in a hopeless hero, but we hope in a savior, Jesus Christ. What I love about this passage is how Paul brings it to a close. Uh, For the most part, he's been kind of nondescript. He doesn't tell us much. Grace appeared, it's bringing salvation. He's not telling us all the details here, but at the end, do you just notice how he just dumps all those details all at once? So as we finish the passage, we know exactly what we're waiting for. We know who we're waiting for. We're waiting for, in verse 14, or I'm sorry, at the end of verse 13, our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. We don't wait for one who compromises his word. We don't wait for one who has good intentions but can't follow through. We wait for the one who has all authority in heaven on earth. We wait for the one who said, in my Father's house there are many rooms, If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, then I will also come again, and I will take you to myself, 
We wait for that one. We wait for the one who's promised that one day we'll meet him in the air. And then we'll always be with the Lord. We're not just simply waiting for another person. We're waiting for the one who loved us and died for us. We're waiting for the one who redeemed us. Who purchased us from death. This God doesn't change. If God has shown his grace in part through the bringing of Jesus Christ, then he'll bring it to full fruition. Would God start a plan and not finish it? No, that's what we do. Yeah, that's our backyard projects. But God, whatever he starts, he brings to an end. And so God sent Christ. He will come again. Believe in his character and his promise. That's exactly why Hebrews tells us we have strong encouragement to hold fast to the hope set before us. We do. Our hopes built on historical realities that took place 2,000 years ago when the deliverer was delivered into this world. It's built on historical realities of a gruesome execution and a bloody, lifeless body. And it's built on the historical realities of a tomb once full and a body gone missing. So how do we know that he's going to return? How can we wait with anticipation? Because our Savior told us we can trust in him. Pray with me. Lord, we thank you for your great grace and your great salvation. Help us to rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory at what you've done. Father, you've redeemed us and you have purchased us. All of your wrath toward us is gone if we're in Christ. God, grant us grace to help us walk in daily grace that you give and to abound in every good work and help us to await your coming with anticipation and joy. It's in Jesus' name we pray, amen.